Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. Uh, apparently I'm now recording. <laughs> Oops, I didn't realize that I was uh, already on here. I um, am recording on my computer today on my laptop because uh, my phone needed to be charged. So I am using my voice recorder for the first time on this computer and I'm a little I was a little bit unfamiliar with it. But here we are and here we go. So we're just going to get started. Um First of all, I would just like to say that I've heard about the death of Charlie Daniels earlier today. And um he was a believer, so I'm glad to know that he is in heaven right now and that he's face to face with our Savior and he is just beginning the journey through eternity with our Lord and all of the wondrous joys that go with that. But at the same time, it is a big loss for, for those of us who are fans of his. Um, and it also, seeing his death trending number one on Twitter made me think of something very important. Um, basically it's this, what are we living for? Everybody knows, I mean, everybody, not everybody, a lot of people know who Charlie Daniels is. But, how many people will be thinking of his death a year from now, even though it's trending on Twitter, and even though it's probably getting talked about on the news a lot, and maybe up through his funeral there's going to be a lot of uh, attention given. Because that always happens with celebrities, right? But think about it. Kobe Bryant died at the beginning of this year, unexpectedly. When is the last time you thought about Kobe Bryant? Obviously, the closer someone was to him, the more likely they are. I'm sure his wife and his children most definitely think about him and miss him daily because that's a big void in their life that's gone. But really, I mean, think about it. It was a huge topic in the news. Probably way more than the, than Charlie Daniels is going to be. I mean, Kobe Bryant was a global star. He's like the the leading scorer. I think he just passed. He he might. I think he just got caught like the. Um, he was just passed like by Le, by LeBron James just not that long before his death for like NBA all time leading scorer. I think it was. And now he's just. I mean, and then he was gone, and everybody was mourning. But when is the last time you really took the time to think about Kobe Bryant? When's the last time his death crossed your mind? And if it did happen recently, does it happen often? No, I, I, I wouldn't think so. At least not for most of us. So my point in bringing this up is just to say, again, what are you living for? Jesus said, 
What does it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose their soul? We can live for fame now. We can live for fortune now. We can live for glory now. Even if you're not famous, you can live for a, a better job, a nicer house, a bigger car, a bigger family, a better family, uh, or just live for the moment in your own pleasures and desires. But I mean, what are you really living for? What are you going to get out of this? I mean, when you're gone, you're gone. But let's, let's take it out a little bit. Let's take it out a hundred years. 2000, year 2120. We're going to assume that the return of Christ hasn't happened yet. A hundred years from now. There's going to be probably some people who still remember Kobe Bryant because of his great contributions to the sport of basketball and his celebrity. But how many people are going to remember Charlie Daniels? A hundred years from now, let's bring this closer to home. How many people are going to remember you? So, and I don't mean this to be depressing, because I, I actually, I, I mean it to be just the opposite. I mean this to be a, a freeing thing. Because, really, what do we, again, it all comes back to what are you living for. If you're living for the here and now, then that's all the reward that you're going to get. Jesus said of people who live for the praise and attention of men, that they have received their reward in full already. But this brief life is just a dot on the timeline of eternity. Live for the line, not for the dot. We are going to exist eternally somewhere. There was a time when you did not exist, but there will never be a time again when you do not exist. You will eternally exist the question is, will you have eternal life? People who follow the Lord Jesus Christ only have to die once. That's the physical death that all people experience. But a person who doesn't have Jesus will die twice. They will die physically and then they will die spiritually. The Bible calls it the second death. And all who experience the second death will spend a conscious eternal existence in the lake of fire. So, I mean, what are you living for? Are you living for whatever you can squeeze out of this brief life? Are you living to accumulate as much as you can? Believing in the adage that whoever dies with the most toys wins? Or are you living for something bigger? Are you living for something eternal? Are you living for something that will never lose its value? Are you living for something that you will be able to appreciate for eternity? Or are you going to spend eternity regretting how you wasted the life that your Creator gave you? How you wasted 
whatever brief amount of time you had here that he gave for you to serve him and to love him so that, and to glorify him so that you could discover your true purpose in life and have real meaning. Are you going to regret that or are you going to truly squeeze every drop you can out of this life by using it all for him? Because those are the things that are going to have real eternal value and meaning. Not the temporal stuff. That I guarantee you, wherever you are, let's let's drag this out a little bit in case some of you are real, you know, in case there's a, a really young person listening who might actually be alive here on earth a hundred years from now. Let's say, let's, let's fast forward 200 years. How old will you be in 200 years? Now, ask yourself, where will you be in 200 years? And then ask yourself if all the things you care about right now on your plate, the things you really care about right now, the things you spend your most time on, are they going to matter to you in 200 years? When you are in eternity, either in heaven or hell, Will the things that you spend most of your time on now matter to you 200 years from now? If you're spending your life on eternal things, the answer to that question would be yes. But if you're spending your life on things that are going to pass away from this world, maybe it would be maybe this is a good time to refocus those priorities so hang on one second let me um, figure out where I'm at here real quick okay so now uh, I've figured out where I am so now we're going to go and we're going to look at uh, we we in our Genesis study we've been looking at Adam and Eve particularly the fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 and when we were there, we saw that God made clothing for Adam and Eve out of animal skins. And let me, if you don't mind, and well, to be honest, even if you do mind, because I've still got to type it in. Let me type this in here real quick. And uh, Genesis 3... God made leather clothing for Adam and his wife and dressed them. And the only way, it says that in Genesis 3, and the only way that that could have been done is through the death of an animal. But, you know, God, so God had to shed blood to make clothing for Adam and Eve. And that is a picture of how, you know, later on in the Bible it says that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. It says that in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, because they had the animal sacrifices to deal with. And it also says that in the New Covenant. Um, you know, it repeats that in the book of Hebrews. It talks about how without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sin. 
So then we have this question from our precept study, which is where we're getting our Genesis uh, material from, is the precept ministry study. It says, what is the primary purpose of clothing? Well, the primary purpose of clothing, remember why this even happened in the first place. When we go back up earlier in Genesis 3, as I start get, um, um, as I start getting notifications on my computer, sorry for that extra noise, but, um, if I, uh, anyway, <laughs> I'll try to limit those, but I can't guarantee there won't be another one. Um, but anywho, what I was trying to say was, is earlier on in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve took from the from the from the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they ate fruit from it it says immediately the two of them did see what was really going on and they saw themselves naked and they sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves so it was their shame due to sin that caused them to cover their most intimate parts whereas prior to in, in their non-sinful state, when they were made perfect by God in their original created form, they had uh, no shame. They could be amongst each other freely. They didn't have to hide anything about themselves from the other. And they didn't have to hide anything, or they didn't have to feel like they had to hide anything about themselves from God. But in our sinful state, in this fallen creation, um, we are still, you know, there, there's still that, uh, that need or that desire to not reveal our entire selves to people. Because if we reveal our entire selves to someone, we're also going to be revealing the depths of our sinfulness without Christ. When you have Christ, when that relationship is restored and now you're a new creature in Christ, you can start to reveal those things about yourself because number one, it's all forgiven. And number two, as a new creation in Christ, you're supposed to be living differently. So you shouldn't have as much to hide, at least after that certain point. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And in any case, even if you do have some things to hide, the best way to restore that relationship and get it back to its optimum level is by confessing your sin. So that it can be forgiven. But so the primary purpose of clothing to answer the first part of this question is to is to um sorry, the dog barking outside is distracting me. The um the primary purpose of clothing is to cover the most intimate parts of ourselves and our bodies so that there's so that we're not completely bare and exposed before everyone and then we only reveal those deepest most intimate parts of ourselves and both on a spiritual level on an emotional level and on a physical level we only reveal those most intimate parts of ourselves to the spouse 
with which we are supposed to become one and to, and to no one else should we reveal our bodies too. So, that is the purpose of clothing. And then the next part of this question says, is this reflected in the way people dress today? That is a big question to answer because it, in some, it depends on a great many factors. Uh, and it's not really something, you know, sometimes I'll say generally speaking and then I'll make some blanket statement that applies across the board but has some exceptions. It's really hard to do that with this question, I think, because a lot of this is culturally influenced. Um, in some parts of the world that are more traditional, uh, more reserved, that haven't completely done away with the traditions of their cultures in favor of whatever's considered modern for our current time, I would say yes, there probably still is some modesty and some, uh, you know, some care about how some, how one dresses. But as a really good friend of mine often points out, particularly in our country, even in the church, that's not always the case. Uh, people are a little more free with. Uh, displaying more of their physical features to more people um, both in public or, or at the pool or just wherever just casually even um, people tend to be more open about that so and but this isn't all again you can't really make general statements like that because there are godly families who make that a priority and do try to live very modestly in how they dress. Um, then again, there are some people that I can, you know, that live, from all accounts that I can tell at least, live a godly lifestyle. I consider godly people. And the, they don't really mind wearing, you know, uh, maybe a shorter skirt or... A particular bathing suit or if they're a guy you know maybe going around without their shirt on or something like that and oh well, for me personally I'm, I don't really get too hung up about that I don't it doesn't bother me I'm not, I'm not gonna rail against it and be like now listen here and point my finger in somebody's face and go you should cover yourself up and you should I just saw a comment on one of the uh, news shows that I watch um, on the blaze where uh, anonymous commenter like the very first thing this person said as soon as it went on the air talking to the host said thank you for covering up and I just thought you know I mean I understand where they're coming from I guess to a point but that kind of snarkiness and just the whole way that that was done I just think that's not very good and maybe it's just because I don't I don't know, maybe it doesn't bother me as much as it should. <laughs> maybe I've been desensitized on some level, especially given my past. Maybe it's, you know, and some of the things I was involved in, maybe that's why it, I've become desensitized on some level to uh, 
exposure of the physical anatomy. But whatever it is, I mean, I, I don't know. It just, it just doesn't bother me that much. So I don't know. Uh, I don't really know what to say about that. Um, so is it? But is the purpose of clothing reflected in the way people dress today? I guess if I was going to try to make some kind of general statement, I would say that um, yes, but it's becoming uh, at least it maybe in a minority of people's lives, and it's becoming less and less so. So that's how I will answer that. And if you want to add your your own uh, comment to that discussion or whatever, feel free to do so. Um, I would be happy to read what you have to say on the subject. So the uh, as we continue on here, it says the final verses of Genesis three verses twenty one through twenty four describe God's action in sending Adam and Eve. From the Garden of Eden. How does this action illustrate the grace and mercy of our God? So it says here at the end of Genesis 3, I'm reading from the message right now, the, uh, the uh, 2018, uh, it's the last time it was updated, it's the, the paraphrase there. It says, so, uh, God said, the man has become like one of us, capable of knowing everything, ranging from good to evil. What if he should now reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat and live forever? Never. This cannot happen. So God's, you know, his concern here is basically, because if they, they've already sinned now, okay? So if they sin... And if they continue, they've sinned, and if they continue to have access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and continue, are able to continue to live forever by, by continuing to eat the fruit from that tree, then they would be forever locked in that sinful state. They would be forever separated from God, and there would be no hope for them. You know, death is the consequences of sin, and it is through the physical death, and of course accepting Christ, but it's through the physical death that we basically escape the bonds of our sinfulness. And if we've accepted Christ, we can then step back into holiness when um, we depart to be with the Father, and then when we get our new resurrected immortal bodies that have been transformed into sinless, uh, into bodies that have not been affected by the curse. But without, I mean, if God would have just conti continued to allow them open access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or, excuse me, to the tree of life after they'd eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they would be stuck like that. And so that's why God said, never, this can't happen. So God wasn't, you know, it's not like God saw what they did, and then he went, ha, 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 and he rubbed his hands together, and he said, I got him now. 
I'm going to punish these guys. I'm going to punish Adam and Eve and all their descendants forever and ever and ever. Because they deserve it and I hate them. No, that's, that wasn't his attitude. His consequences or his punishment was actually at the same time a merciful act. Yes, it wasn't fun. Yes, it was painful for them. Yes, it was a judgment from God. I know people don't like to hear that and talk about that. Oh, not, not the loving Jesus. Yes, God is a judge. Yes, Jesus is a judge. He judges things. So, yes, judgment is part of God's nature and his character. But his judgment is also a reflection of his mercy and grace. Because it prevented them from having access to the tree of life that would have continued to allow them to live forever in perpetuity in that state. And they would have been eternally without hope. So God protected them by punishing them. He protected them from a worse fate or from... Should, maybe not a worse, well, yeah, a worse fate, by locking themselves in a position where they wouldn't have been able to escape from. So God's judgment is actually a, a reflection of his mercy and grace. And then continuing on to finish out the chapter, the next paragraph says, so God expelled them from the Garden of Eden and sent them to work the ground, the same dirt out of which they'd been made. He threw them out of the garden and stationed angel cherub cherubim and a revolving sword of fire east of it, guarding the path to the tree of life. Again, this was a merciful action to, to illustrate the grace and mercy of God while also being a judgment and a punishment and a curse. But even that judgment, punishment, and curse were rooted in God's love and mercy and grace. So, I find this to be pretty enlightening. Uh, because we see here how God separates, or, or excuse me, how God, uh, not separates, how he weaves all these truths together. And as we move through his progressive revelation of truths, because he doesn't reveal everything all at once, he, he gives a progressive revelation. It doesn't mean God's a progressive. Oh, no. It means that he, he progressively reveals more and more about himself and his plan and what his, what his laws are, what his rules are, what he expects of us. He reveals that progressively over time in the word of God and um, he, he does that so that we can learn from him but he doesn't do it all at once if that makes sense so um, we can know and be encouraged that in the process of it all as we're learning that we're being sanctified and set apart by truth, the truth that protects us from the snare, the devices, and the deception 
of the deceiver, Satan, the serpent, in Genesis 3. And it's also important for us to remember the prophecy of Genesis 3, 14, and 15. And that the serpent, Satan, is a defeated enemy. And we can give praise to Yahweh for that. So now we have studied Genesis 3. We have completed those notes. Now we are ready to move on. We have about 32 minutes left in this particular podcast. So now we are going to move on to the next section, which is about Cain and Abel and their descendants. And so... In learning about Cain and Abel and their descendants, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 4 and 5. And these chapters, quite frankly, are often passed over very quickly. I'm doing a one-year reading plan right now with one of the host teams that I'm on with Life Church. And we're going through the Bible in a year. It's something that we just started uh, we didn't start in January, we just created, uh, we've actually only been at this for maybe two weeks now. We're doing a chronological reading plan and we're, we're only through Job so far. I tried this earlier in the year with some other friends and we didn't really, it didn't get very far. There wasn't a lot of participation, so I'm starting, I started it over in uh, a couple weeks ago with a couple of people from my uh, from one of the host teams that I'm on with Life Church, and I talked about how a lot of times uh, on one of those one of the posts about it when we were studying it, I talked about how uh, about my temptation to skip over the constant back and forth in the Book of Job between Job and his three friends. And then eventually you get Elihu thrown in there, the young man who thinks he knows it all, and who rebukes Job's elder friends and then Job himself for, I don't know, whatever his perception of what was going on was. But I, I remember talking, I've talked recently as we've been going through Job about how I'm so tempted to skip over all that back and forth between Job and his friends because it's just this endless cycle of Job you're a sinner and you need to repent and then Job says no I'm innocent I really am and even if I wasn't uh, you know or excuse me but even though I am you know God's the judge of the universe and he's all powerful and he's grinding me to powder he's you know he's, he's, he's gonna return me to dust and I'm going down to the grave and I'll be hopelessly lost and on and on and on even though I'm righteous and I'm holy and I'm this and that, but and, and he he was all those things, but you know it's just that endless back and forth. And if I wasn't doing the reading plan and doing a little you know like a little reaction to each day's reading, I would be so tempted to skip over the book of Job because I've done that so often when doing Bible reading plans. When I get to Job, like I wouldn't let me rephrase that. I wouldn't I wouldn't skip over it, but I would. I would speed read through it. I would go through it so quickly that I really wasn't taking the time to go through and read it. But now, 
I guess I guess you could say I've got I have some built-in accountability because I'm doing this reading plan with other people and I'm writing something for them to you know for for them to read and for us to discuss you know I want all of us to be able to discuss the chapters for that day and I want them to do the same I want them to read the chapters and give their thoughts and their comments on it um so that makes me read it. Well, the whole point of me bringing that up is is that this is another couple of chapters, Genesis 4 and 5, particularly when you get to the stuff about the genealogies that I feel like people have a tendency to maybe want to skip over. Or you speed read it, like I read through Job, and sometimes you read it very quickly, these next two chapters, 4 and 5. But we really shouldn't do that because Genesis 4 and 5 are very vital chapters. And in them we see how God expects man to approach him in worship. And we see what civilization was like before Noah's flood. So these chapters, Genesis 4 and 5, are they kind of bridge the gap between the Garden of Eden and the flood and there's about a 1600 year gap between Genesis 1 1 when God created the heavens and the earth and the flood of Noah's day which happened around 4400 BC it's not the exact year but it was around that time when it happened so there's a there's about 1600 years between the creation and the flood and we don't know exactly how long Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before they before they sinned. So we have, but here in Genesis four and five, this whole these two chapters cover a pretty significant amount of time. And as I said, they're kind of like the bridge between the fall of man in the Garden of Eden when he was cast out of the garden and Noah's flood everything that led up to that and why it happened is all it all kind of begins here and we see how the human race slowly degrades over time until when we get to Genesis 6 God will say that the human race has gotten so bad that the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So Genesis 4 and 5 bridge the gap between the fall and the flood. So what we learn here in these chapters, Genesis 4 and 5, may amaze us because it certainly isn't the common teaching of the secular culture. You know, most of sec uh, you know, well, secular culture does not accept the account of Genesis. Number one, the account of creation. Number two, the fall. Uh, um, I believe the general attitude of people is that people are basically good, and the Bible doesn't teach that. People are not basically good. People are basically sinners. You don't have to teach a child to sin, to, to, you know, you don't have to teach a child to be selfish. 
They do it on their own. This reminds me of something that I read one time. Let me see if I can pull this up real quick. It was from the Minnesota Crime Commission in 1926. And so let me uh, click on this here so I can read this. I don't want the PDF version. Don't want to download that. I think this one has it pretty good. All right, here we are. This is, it was reprinted in, uh, oh, is this a blog thing? It's um, Mark Barnes in uh, May 2008. He republished this. But it actually comes from, it, it originated with the Minnesota, the Minnesota Crime Commission in 1926. And here's what it says. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmates' toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these and he seethes it with, with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to, satis to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, or a rapist and I personally believe that that's uh, that's the end of the uh, Minnesota Crime Commission thing from 1926 but I personally believe that that is why we have so many problems in the world that we do today and in, particularly in certain parts of the world and societies like this one like some of the stuff that's been happening in our country lately it's because people were given more free reign for their impulsive actions and to satisfy their wants than they should have ever had. And because of that, they've grown up to be criminals, thieves, killers, and rapists. Now, um, I wasn't planning on reading the rest of this article, but I think uh, from this thing from Mark Barnes in 2008, but I think that uh, I want to read this here. He continues on after quoting this and he says, You might think that's a strange quotation with which to start a Christian magazine themed around children and families, but it's here to help us understand how much society has changed and how much we've lost our perspective. This particular quote is from the Minnesota Crime Commission and was published in 1926. It's virtually impossible to imagine any government agency saying anything similar today. Again, because as I said, you know, we too many people have accepted the progressive idea that people are basically good, that 
people only do bad things when because they're raised in bad environments and uh, you know if, if a child's acting up then there must be something wrong and it must be the parents or somebody else who's at fault um, I've got a relative who seems to relish this idea that well if you, you know, the child's misbehaving there must be some reason for it and it can't be them why child's too sweet and too nice no it's a little savage <laughs> but let me continue reading here um it's virtually impossible to imagine any government agency saying anything similar today but that excerpt accurately reflects what the bible says about original sin and the responsibility of parents and society to love, teach, and discipline. When considering children, our society tends to lurch from one perspective to its complete opposite. Where children enter the national consciousness, it's often to remind us that children need our protection, hence the current obsession with child protection and child advocacy. But the very next day, the claim might well be that because adults need to be protected from their, from them, hence the middle-class hand-wringing over, over, over hoodies and ASBOs. It is a tragedy that every year thousands of children are abused by adults. It's also a tragedy that thousands of children feel that the rules of society do not apply to them and that they can live their lives as they wish with, with no regard of, to others. But we mustn't lose sight of the fact that both problems stem from a failure both to understand biblical principles and to put them into practice. When examining what the scriptures say about children, we find that it is full of what we might call common sense. And that shouldn't surprise us, because God designed humankind in a particular way. He then revealed that truth to us in the Bible, along with clear principles on how we should live in the light of his plan. So it should not be a surprise to find out that what the Bible says actually fits our own experience. And it really works. Therefore, uh, it says in this month's magazine, and this was originally a magazine article, you'll find articles about children in church and children at home. Uh, and I don't want to read too much of that because we're not going to be reading the whole magazine. But I'm going to skip down to the more relevant parts for this particular podcast. Again, this is from Mark Barnes in May 2008. And I'm getting this from markbarnes.net. That's B-A-R-N-E-S. As Christians, we need to be clear in our thinking and consistent in our practice. We need to ensure that we really value children. Psalm 127.3 is well known. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, and children are, are a reward from Him. Valuing our children means providing for them, caring for them, and of course praying for them. Job 1, 4, and 5 demonstrate this. 
And crucially, valuing our children means valuing the family. How else are our children going to be cared for? How else will they know that they are loved, cherished, and held accountable? How can we say to children that, that they are hugely significant and at the same time behave, behave as if fathers are unimportant? How can we talk about the importance of caring for and teaching children whilst always pushing mothers out of the home and into paid employment? As Christians, we need to take the lead in demonstrating the importance of family relationships. Of course, it's easy to point the finger at society and forget that as Christians, we do not always get things right with regard to children. We have sometimes been guilty of judgmental attitudes which have exacerbated the problem of family breakdown at just the time when people need our support the most. There are encouraging signs that those attitudes are changing, but there's still much more that could be done in reaching out into our communities to support those who want to bring up their children within a stable family, but are finding it almost impossible. There is another corrective towards the wrong attitude toward children that is prominent in the Bible. It's the simple truth that the children are a reflection of their parents. I am sometimes told that I have inherited all my father's bad points and none of his good ones. Whether or not that is true, our parents need our parents are an enormous influence on us. Both through what they show us and also through what we fail to see in them. Speaking of the Israelites' uh, failure to worship God, 2 Kings 17.41 says, To this day their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. Proverbs 14.26 states, states the other side of the coin. He who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. Of course, that is not to remove the responsibility of children to behave in a godly way. Our society tends to excuse bad behavior. It's the parents. It's the schools. They have nothing to do. All of these things can contribute to delinquency, but they never excuse it. All... All but the smallest children know right from wrong, and even the very small are quite capable of deliberate naughtiness. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 11 says, Even a child is known by his actions, by whether his conduct is pure and right. All this demonstrates the huge responsibility that we have for children, whether or not we have children of our own. It should remind us of the importance of Sunday schools, youth groups, and summer camps. Sometimes as Christians we can be guilty of seeing a changing society as an excuse to withdraw from work with children and young people because we say it's much harder than ever before. But I'm simply not convinced that is true. Working with children and young people has never been easy. So rather than withdrawing from children's work, our churches ought to be redoubling our efforts. Society needs us more than ever. But as we do so, we must understand two things. Let me look and 
check how I'm doing on time here. Okay, I've got about 13 minutes left. But as we do, we must understand two things. First, by focusing on children, we must focus on families. We often think of reaching parents through their children. But it is more biblical to think of reaching parents and their children. We need to give sustained thought and prayer to creating opportunities for whole families to come to church together and be taught together. Second, we need to ensure that we are gospel-centered. We can teach children and perhaps even parents Christian behavior, but it won't necessarily help their soul. We do not want to return to the situation of two generations ago with millions of self-righteous religious pagans filling church buildings across the land. Our primary responsibility is to teach the gospel and pray that the Holy Spirit would make it effective. So what an encouragement to read what Jesus said of children in Matthew 11.25 and Matthew 18.2-5. He said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and revealed them to little children. And then he said, um, he was speaking to a larger audience here, and Jesus said, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. So, we need to remember, as we learn God's word and as we begin this study, in Genesis 4 and 5 about Cain and Abel and their descendants, um, we will get an, that we will be getting an eyewitness account of the beginning of civilization from the one who was there. The one who brought it all into being. The one who communicated directly with those he created. The one who cannot lie because he is God. We need to realize as we do the work of presenting ourselves to God as one approved that we are reading a book that is the very word of God. The Bible is the word of God. And while many do not believe that for whatever reason, their unbelief doesn't change the truth that the Bible is God's word. And that's their choice, really. God gave Adam and Eve a choice, and he gives you a choice also. We all have a choice to believe or not. But what we don't have a choice over and what we can't change are the consequences of those choices, good or bad. There's so much food for thought in Genesis 4 and 5. 
because the word of God is life-nourishing food that a hungry world desperately needs, whether they recognize it or not. So, let us pray and meditate as we go forward in the Genesis study and we start learning about in chapters 4 and 5 of Cain and Abel and their descendants. Let us pray and meditate and that we will reap a great harvest that can be used to feed the hungry multitudes as we disciple others. So in other words, don't just listen to this and nod in agreement or say amen. Take what you learn from these podcasts and take what you learn from your own study of God's word and share it with people. Share it with other people. Like literally, you can click the share button when I post this and share it. Or whether you got it through Facebook Messenger or whether you got it on Facebook or whether you got it on Twitter or whether you got it on Parlor, or whether you're listening to it directly from Spotify or from Anchor or from CastBox or wherever you get your podcasts. Literally share this with other people. Share every episode with other people. And not, don't just share it and then forget it. Take what you learn and share it in conversations with others, with, with those that you love. Because we're studying, not because I'm the one speaking, although that would be cool if you would, I would appreciate the, the uh, traffic to my podcast, don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't mind plugging something that I'm doing, you know. <laughs> I think more listeners would be awesome. I would really appreciate that. But whether you reference me or not, or whether you reference this study or not, Take the truths that you learn from it and from God's Word itself and share it with friends, family, relatives, co-workers. Uh, don't be shy about doing so. In fact, be bold in doing so. Even if you're in an environment where you've been told not to. You, we are to obey God's laws over man's laws. Okay? So, there's a lot of food for thought in these chapters, so we're going to give a lot of study and meditation to these, and we're hoping for a harvest. And we want to be able to disciple others with what we learn, so then, so then they can disciple others in obedience to Matthew 28, 18-20, which Jesus gave us the Great Commission that says to go into all the world and make disciples of His. That's our job. That is bringing this full circle. That is what it means to live with an eternal perspective. To share Jesus with the world. And not just the evangelism part, but the discipling part. It's a, Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and give them the salvation message and then move on to the next person. He said, go into all the world and teach and making disciples of all nations by teaching them everything that I commanded you. Not just, not just the salvation part. Don't just give people their fire insurance and then move along. We're supposed to disciple them in everything that Jesus taught. And so that's what I... 
pray we will get out of this. And so I have about four minutes here before the end of this podcast, so I'm not going to give any commentary, or at least I don't intend to give any commentary here. But I want to take these last four minutes, and I just want to read Genesis chapter 4 in its entirety. And then on the next podcast, we will get... We will zoom in, as I like to say, on more of the details. But for right now, I just want to read it with the few minutes we have left. And I'm reading, right now, I'm reading from the message paraphrase. And it says, Adam slept with his wife Eve. She conceived and had Cain, C-A-I-N. She said, I've gotten a man with God's help. Then she had another baby. Abel, A-B-E-L. Abel was a herdsman and Cain a farmer. Time passed. Cain brought an offering to God from the produce of his farm. Abel also brought an offering, but from the firstborn animals of his herd, choice cuts of meat. God liked Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering didn't get his approval. Cain lost his temper and went into a sulk. And God spoke to Cain. Why this tantrum? Why the sulking? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you. You've got to master it. Cain had words with his brother. They were out in the field. Cain came at Abel, his brother, and killed him. God said to Cain after this, Where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, How should I know? Am I his babysitter? God said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is, is calling out to me from the ground. From now on, you'll get nothing but curses from this ground. You'll be driven from this ground that has opened its arms to receive the blood of your murdered brother. You'll farm this ground, but it will no longer give you its best. You'll be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to God, My punishment's too much. I can't take it. You've thrown me off the land and I can never again face you. I am a homeless wanderer on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. God told him, No. Anyone who kills Cain will pay for it seven times over. And so God put a mark on Cain to protect him so that no one who met him would kill him. And Cain left the presence of God and lived in no man's land east of Eden. It's actually called Nod, but it's translated here as no man's land. Cain slept with his wife, and she conceived, and had Enoch. He then built a city and named it after his son, Enoch. Enoch had Irad. Irad had Mahujael. Mahujael had Methushael. Methushael had Lamech. Lamech married two wives, Ada and Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, the ancestor of all who live in tents and herd cattle. His brother's name was Jubal, the ancestor of all who play the lyre and flute. Zillah gave birth to Tubal-Cain, 
who worked at the forge making bronze and iron tools. Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. And how am I doing on time now? I've only got 10 seconds. I'll, we will continue reading this tomorrow, and we will do more of this then. Thank you very much for listening. God bless. I'll be with you tomorrow. Bye-bye.